build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. Welcome back to Live from Five Point. This live show has become an annual event, one of our favorite parts of the year. This is the second half of the show. It was recorded live at Steve's Guitars in downtown Carbondale, Colorado. We've lightly edited the pieces so that they maintain the feel of the event. If you missed the first installment, we spoke with free skier Josh Dweck and kayaker Chris Korbulik. This week, we present two new guests, both sharing stories around the theme of when the shit hits the fan. For the last decade, Ben Moon has made a living as a photographer. If you flip through a Patagonia catalog, you've seen his work. In 2004, Ben was in his late 20s, living out of his solar power equipped van, traveling almost nonstop when he began having health problems. He tried to ignore them, but friends convinced him to seek medical attention. He was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. Ben didn't have the traditional safety nets, no home, no grounded center, his health insurance company dropped him due to technicality in his application. It was in this troubling time that Ben realized the power of the community. I knew I'd, I'd been having symptoms for about a year and a half and kind of ignored them because I was traveling so much. And uh, my friend asked me to live with him and pretty much about a, I just settled into a room and realized how nice it was to not have to unpack an office out of Pelican cases every day. Uh, and a few friends really saved my life and kind of pushed me in to go see a doctor and uh, caught, caught it just in time, basically. Uh, it was about as bad as it could get without it being just really bad. So when this happened, it was kind of, it was a shock. It was a shock. I mean, it kind of stopped things dead right there. It was literally I had to go, you know, it was just doctors after doctor after doctor and just crazy trying to come to terms with, you know, what, what's next. And if you don't know what's happening next, I mean, the time between finding out that it was a malignant cancer to staging it was five days and probably the longest five days of my life. I didn't know how bad it was. And all those little goals um, were pretty, you know, pretty important to just know and through all the chemo and the radiation and just knowing what was next and just focusing on that. Because if I focused on the fact that this thing could, you know, potentially, you know, take me or I just could never even look at that. I had to look at the, what I could do to beat this thing. And, and through all of that, um, I mean, it was the community, it was my friends, it was the collective energy of all of those that just, just absolutely just rallied. Uh, it was incredible. And I remember at that point I was, you know, scared to call some photo editors and to even just talk to them. I was still really kind of shy in that way. And, and they would just, you know, stay on the phone with me for, and, you know, half an hour, an hour, and just realize that these people weren't my clients, they were my friends. And they're people that really cared for me, they were family. And, and that's one thing I just love about our community is just, we have something so special here that it's just, it's rare. I mean, when this happened, I had, I had major medical health insurance, you know, and the only reason I still had it was because 
uh, it was such a cheap plan that I'd forgotten to cancel it because I, I, I knew something was wrong. <laughs> and so I got a better policy. And after, after I got diagnosed with cancer, this is how messed up our insurance system is, they dropped me immediately. Uh, but my friends all rallied and it was before you know Facebook and all that stuff and social media to really spread the word about anything and we had to do it all grassroots style. And uh, I was living in Bend at the time and uh, basically just kind of put out the call said, hey, we're gonna do a little you know, benefit auction to see if we can help cover some expenses because I really couldn't work. I mean, the pictures I took during that, the images I captured during that time were just atrocious. I feel like they were my worst work ever because I didn't feel good at all. I mean, when you're being just poisoned by chemo and stuff, it's just, there's no creative energy left. It's, it's, I mean, you're, you feel close to everyone around you, but just, there's no gas there, you know, in the tank. And my friends all rallied and, I mean, put out the word for this auction and I could not believe it because, you know, a month later we had a room full of gear, I mean a bedroom full of gear and we couldn't sell it all and it was just just this outpouring support that I couldn't believe and I really couldn't even think that it was about me because it would freak me out too much and uh, I had friends that were just would kind of, my friend had a big house that I was staying at and I had friends that would just kind of come through and I thought they were just traveling, you know, because we'd climb on trips together and I, they would just stay for, you know, weeks and, you know, kind of take turns and I didn't really realize until later that they were all just kind of being there for me and I didn't want anyone hovering over me because I had enough energy to take care of myself but it was just I always knew that that energy was there and it was interesting going through the whole experience with cancer because I couldn't it was such a drawn-out process it was over the course of you know 10 months or a year and and then just detoxing from all the chemicals and stuff after that was another process in itself and it was in my face but it was just you're dealing with it on a daily basis and it was just kind of a he kind of built up an endurance to it you know it was it wasn't easy but it was just what was right there and you have to all you can do is look for the next day look at things that are positive yourself to think that that this cancer was going to be terminal that, that that just wasn't an option that you were like sitting there and you, you never focused on that you didn't harp on it um, so obviously you were thinking about the future like you were thinking about where you were going and you knew that you had to work and that you knew that creativity had to be a part of your life when you look forward at that point where did you see yourself going I think the biggest shift for me was the fact that prior to that I I really was kind of enamored by athletes that, you know, had really would, you know, send high grades and climbing or just, you know, kind of about the numbers and who, who was who was a big deal. And obviously they were my friends, but it, it still was kind of important. And after that, I kind of, I didn't really care anymore at all about, after just getting knocked flat, you know, and not having the energy to really, you know, climb or do anything that I really could do at, a, at, a, at the level I wanted to, it kind of just shifted everything and made me realize that it's just what's what's important is our friendships and what and the connections we have with others and the relationships we have with others and prior I was always you know kind of the Patagonia style and not have anybody looking at the camera kind of you know always kind of quartering away to showing a scene and trying to capture emotion in the scene without really showing somebody's you know face dead on in, in the eye and I think I was always intimidated by portraiture and things of that nature because it was, it was it's scary I mean you're that's a really deep connection and and I gradually kind of shifted towards wanting to do that. Worked with a few companies that, you know, 
had more of that style and then I then I just became fascinated with just pure portraiture and just people's faces and and just stripped of that element of just the humanity of it and not about the environment just about their face and who they were and and probably one of the it's probably one of the hardest and scariest things to, to capture just because it's such a raw intimate moment and but that that connection and seeing someone else open up is just so endlessly fascinating it's just I I can't get enough of that feeling when you do when somebody is so petrified of that camera in their face and they they just you see them for a moment for who they really are it just it's it's kind of a it's kind of my drug I guess. <laughs> situation with, with cancer did that I mean were you afraid and did, does that fear correlate to sometimes what we feel when we're out in the outdoors and things go wrong I did have one experience about a year and a half ago I was shooting a big wave contest I wanted to be there I canceled a trip to go go east to go on a climbing shoot to be there because it was just perfect conditions it was you know 25 feet at 19 seconds or something it was something absurd for conditions for bigger waves on the Oregon coast and I'd never seen it that perfect and a lot of the best guys, big wave guys were there and it was it was a hectic day. I mean skis were wrecking right and left. There were Mavericks veterans coming in with wide eyes just absolutely scared out of their minds, you know, weren't gonna go back out there and I was supposed to have a seat in the plane and that didn't come till right when I was all geared up to go out on a ski and go shoot it. And I just really wanted to be in the water because it there's just a camaraderie out there and energy that is so amazing because those guys are all taking care of each other and Basically, it was kind of the perfect storm of everything going wrong. It, the, the, they were really short on safety skis, and the ski I was on had to be swapped out to be the safety because it was the only one left. So I'm on this ski uh, with this paddler, Theo Berman, and we're on a ski that doesn't have power. I mean, it's, it's only at half power, and the whole pack gets shifted into the inside, and a, a monster set comes in, and, and everybody else scraps over the, you know, drives their jet skis over the top of the top of that set and we started to go up and, and we probably had time to go over the, the shoulder but Teo spun it around and we tried to outrun it and my heart sunk. I mean I just knew we were just done for because there's no way we could outrun a you know 40 foot wave with a wounded jet ski. <laughs> just, you're just, I mean it was literally, I've never felt so just like this is the worst place I could be right now. Um, and we got to the bottom, you know, we got managed to get down the face into the bottom but the thing exploded behind us. and. I mean, the walls of water were just insane, and basically, Teo turned around and said, hold on, hold your breath, <laughs> and I mean, just got obliterated, and I can't explain the forces that are at work in those ways, it just, it feels like you're being hit by many, many buses at once, and being pulled in every direction, just the, the hydrodynamics of that force, and those waves out there, they're in such deep water, they, they're pretty slabby, so they push you, they don't push you, recycle you really quickly, they push you, push you, and push you, and push you. And so you have just enough time to get to the surface and we counted about 12 second hold downs which you have about two and a half seconds to clear the foam out of your face and take a breath as the next as the next one's coming on your head and i remember during that time it was so intense and talk about being present it was it was there was no other option because i knew if i panicked for a second it was gone and when the fourth one of that wave of that set hit i knew that if there was one behind that that i was done i didn't have the energy anymore to to hold my breath underwater, just just beating the snot out of me. And 
And then we realized that we were left, nobody knew we were in. Nobody knew where we were. Nobody, everybody thought we just went to go inside. And so after we got closer, so we were a mile offshore, three quarters of a mile offshore. And as we got closer, there's shore pound, which is also breaking about 25 feet onto rocks. And the rip is so strong, we don't know where the shore, you know, is, or, you know, I don't know that shoreline. And, you know, we start to feel the pull of the inside waves. We're like, okay, this is gonna, this is gonna be awful. Nobody knows where we are. We have to swim in, and and start feeling the pull and realize that we're we're right in the path of like a pile of rocks the size of this room. And and Teo just to swim, and I still had my water housing, and for some reason that was one of my one ankle to anchor to normalcy. It just felt like I was supposed to be out there swimming with the housing. Just, I'd been in the water so many times, and it just felt like okay, this is what I'm doing, and it just kind of felt like this is this is the reason I'm here, and. At that moment, I probably would have been better off just ditching it because I couldn't swim as fast as I needed to. I didn't have fins on, which is a big regret because I had them strapped to my waist and I dumped them in the car right before I went out because I thought I just had too much stuff. And I don't know if they would have even stayed on, but swimming without fins in that much water is not fun and you can't go very fast. But Teo managed to get out of it and I punched through the first couple and came up for that feeling when you come through a way out of out of wave and you feel it pulling back and usually you can get over the top but that thing was so powerful it just dropped me and all I knew is that the rocks were behind me and that was the second moment out there where I was like this is it I'm done it's, there's no there's no escaping this uh, and blew my MCL out as I hit the water because it was a big drop and I was like well my knee's gone but I, at least I'm still I might be able to make it in and it was just Finally made it to shore and, you know, found out later that they were freaking out on shore and just, you know, everybody's calling 911, but the Coast Guard was up there shrugging because we were on our own. I mean, there was nobody, nobody knew where we were and it's just finding anybody in that water when the foam is as deep as these guitars is, it's just, it's impossible. So, but that was such an intense, just face of mental mortality. It was like, it was right in my face. I never in my life had experienced that before because like I said, cancer was such a drawn up process that it just, it was a very different way of responding to it. You know, you have time to think about and get, kind of psych yourself up, but this was just, you don't have, there was no opportunity to kind of relax. And, and so it was such a distilled experience. Do you take two different things away from those two different experiences? I think the experience with cancer was really just, and it wasn't something I chose, but it was something I had to deal with, and it was a long, you know, process of coming to terms with, coming to terms with it, but also just, I, it was such a blessing. I mean, I, I feel like it shifted me so much in so many ways, and I really, I feel so much more connected to my friends, and I appreciate them so much more, and I appreciate just living so much more, and and having the opportunity to do the things I I do, and whereas the other experience was so such a reminder of just almost mortality, it was just okay, you know, you better live your life like it, this day could be your last because things can happen. I mean, obviously, I I chose to be out there and. I was questioning it as I was swimming for sure and I looked up at the plane that I'd been offered a seat in and I thought, wow, that looks really cozy up there. <laughs> and I was definitely pretty freaked out for a while, but I you know, I want it. I want to go out there again. It's it's amazing. So Thank you so much, Ben.
Mark Ritchie's climbing and alpine experiences span nearly 40 years. His first ascents and more than 40 expeditions hop all around the globe to the Karakoram, the Himalaya, the Cordillera Blanca, rock spires, and Greenland. By his own words, he's experienced and old. Last year, he and Steve Swenson and Freddie Wilkinson summited the second highest unclimbed mountain in the world, Sasser Kongri II. Both Mark and Steve are in their 50s, and they've climbed together for years, and they've each had their brush with close calls. But when a sinus infection worsened for Steve, this might have been the closest call yet. Mark takes it from here. It was close, uh, closer than I certainly, than, than we wanted. Uh, um, uh, of course, when you've climbed uh, in the mountains for as long as I have, you have, you have close calls. See? That's part of the, the deal. But um, this one wasn't just close, it was, uh, um, it was something that we really felt we had no control of uh, when it went wrong um, because um, he couldn't breathe uh, at times and that's a really helpless uh, condition to be in but also to see someone in. If you could describe like basically what happened to Steve, you know, that this wasn't, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like he got sick right at the last second. It was some, it was sort of seemed like a, a steady deterioration. Hmm. Um, if you could sort of describe basically what went wrong with Steve and then where on the mountain you guys were hmm. when, when it really got bad. Right, so we were over in India, in a very remote part of India, uh, attempting this mountain, Sasakangre II, which we had attempted previously uh, in 2009, failed, uh, learned a lot. Had come back in 2011 with a slightly different team, Steve, myself, and an, another good friend, Freddie Wilkinson. So we wanted to climb an alpine stock, so that's a big factor. Uh, it was too hot, though, um, to climb Sasakangre, so we uh, decided to um, acclimatize on another peak. All the mountains here are unclimbed, by the way. And this was just a fantastic uh, climb we did. It's called, we named the mountain Sokangre. It's a 6,500-meter peak. But it's just stellar splitter ice route. Uh, and just had an incredible day. But on that climb, Steve just wasn't himself. He had this sinus infection. And uh, he has an unusual condition. At, I've never seen an athlete's before. But it's, I don't know what the medical term is, but it's basically... Um, uh, exercise-induced mucus buildup. So the harder he works, the more mucus he builds up. And he just deals with it. Steve went down after Tsokangre to, um, to rest, all the way down to 10,000 feet. Uh, you know, Steve was like, I gotta get ready for the big one. But it didn't feel right already, you know, going all the way back down to the Nubra Valley. We were concerned about him. Well, Ten days later, we reunited with Steve uh, back in the Nubra, and he, you know, he was his. Um, he'd been doing everything he could. He had taken a couple rounds of antibiotics and was ready. And uh, climbed back up to base camp, seven thousand foot day, in a, in a, uh, which that was a good sign. But he was still hacking and coughing and more than normal. Kind of a long story short, we um, we made ready. We had a long range weather forecast that looked really good and uh, this was it, this was going to be it. This was uh, two years in the making, um, there wasn't going to be another shot for me or Steve and uh, we were psyched, uh, we were acclimatized, we were fit, we'd figured everything out we could about this mountain 
We had a really strong third partner with us, and so we headed up. First day he was, you know, coughing and hacking a lot, but um, uh, the route's about 6,000 feet of, you know, steep ice, mixed ice and rock climbing. Each day, for Steve, things get a little worse. And uh, it was, the weather was perfect. And we were so psyched. And here we were with this incredible opportunity. Um, I certainly, and I know Steve, we're not, we wouldn't have gone back to Sasser Country. I really knew Steve was hurting when we got to um, our second bivouac, and there's no ledges on this wall. It's one of the defining natures, the uh, characteristics of this wall of Sasser Congress. Although it's not that steep, it's kind of like maybe the steepness of the north face of the Eiger. There are literally no bivouac spots, and everything has to be hacked from solid ice. It's really a lot of work, especially at those altitudes. <clears throat> and Steve's usually the guy with just, you know, he does all his his you know share of work and then some. So we got to chop and Steve couldn't do anything, he just hung there at the at the belay while Freddie and I prepared, you know, two, three hours of solid chopping to get a you know three foot wide ledge. And that's when I knew Steve was uh, he was fucked. So but we got a good night's sleep and the next morning uh, you know Steve wanted to go and the weather was again perfect. And you know it, I guess the point I'm getting to with all this is um, in retrospect, we shouldn't have continued on because Steve could have died. And that would have really been a bad ending. But at the time, it's so easy to look back and say that, but at the time, how do you second guess this guy who wants to go on and is literally one of the strongest high altitude climbers I've ever climbed with and knows himself better than anybody and was, you know, felt he could do it. That and also, you know, confused with, I've seen this condition before, and he just is always able to manage it. So we continued, and um, by the time we summited, Steve was just literally crawling to the top. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a, it was, it was an incredible moment for us to be on the summit, again, in just unbelievable weather. You could see hundreds of miles into the greater Karakoram, K2, all the Karakoram giants way into Tibet. We were the only ones in a vast wilderness of unclimbed peaks and the second highest mountain in the world. And uh, just an extraordinary, like being on another planet. And uh, we, we savored that, but what of course was weighing heavy on all our minds is Steve is in really bad shape. And we got back down to our high camp. Steve, um, uh, we tried to make him comfortable, but he was in bad shape. And uh, he couldn't lay down because he was hucking up so much mucus that it was beginning to block his trachea. So he spent the whole night sitting up, which forced Freddie and I into really uncomfortable positions. And the next day we descended the entire mountain, another stroke of luck, it got cloudy because had it been really sunny like it had been, the great Kuwar would have been too dangerous with the rockfall. We didn't counter one rockfall and huge rocks coming down all around us, but were narrowly missed us. Nonetheless, we got all the way down, got to, uh, our advanced base camp in the dark, and uh, that's kind of when the real drama began. Uh, early in the morning, Steve woke up, woke me up, and Steve was upright, wide-eyed, with a look of terror on his face. And he was having these fits where he um, 
was choking on his own uh, phlegm. Big hunks of it were coming up like like ball, like golf ball sized pieces of uh, sticky contact adhesive. And they were jamming in his trachea and he just, he couldn't breathe. And we didn't know what to do. We had a sat phone and uh, just as, just a little, just trying to talk could bring on this. And uh, we realized that um, we better try to get him evacuated. And that's what we did. Obviously, you have a lot of faith in Steve, and, and Steve is, is, has this incredible resume of peaks, but um, at that point for you, do you think that was maybe the, the darkest moment of your climbing career? I wouldn't say it's the darkest moment. It's certainly one of the scariest moments, but uh, when I was 19, I had a, my climbing partner died when a ledge collapsed while climbing with me. So I can't say it was the darkest, but it was certainly one of the scariest ones and one of the most helpless ones because... And I've dealt with all kinds of injuries in the mountains and uh, pretty good at that stuff. And so is Freddie, so is Steve. But what do you do when someone can't breathe? You know, it's just like, you only got a couple of minutes. And we were, we had taken the loops off of our harnesses, the hollow plastic loops and a Swiss Army knife. And we boiled them, getting them ready to perform a, you know, emergency tracheometry on them, if that would have even worked. But what are you going to do when he stops breathing? We were in contact with um, his personal physician, and uh, he was helping us and talking through it. But, and I said, okay, Brownie, so what happens when he can't breathe? What do we do? And there was like a long pause, and he goes, oh, don't, don't let that happen. <laughs> I said, yeah, I, we got that, but uh, we're getting, we get, should we try to perform an a emergency tracheometry? And he says, oh, no, you'll never, you'll never, that'll never work. In the meantime, we were doing everything we could to make Steve comfortable. We built a chair. He couldn't sit in the tents. They were getting too hot. So we built a chair outside uh, of snow and skis, and we were hydrating him. And that was beginning to help a little. And he'd get these coughing fits, but he'd break them up, and they'd come out. This, this trip sort of seemed like the last hurrah for two, two incredible climbers with incredible... Uh, Karakoram experience, um, and is it like I mean, you know, like like does that does that thirst for for being on those unclimbed peaks wither after an experience like this? Well, Freddie added that line. That was uh, you know, so um, I don't actually remember saying that, but uh, I, I, we might have talked about. It. I mean, this was I think probably for Steve it is. And uh, because I think he's afraid to, frankly, put his partners or himself in that kind of position again. And it's, it, he is, he's nervous that he could have that kind of thing happen again because of this condition he has. I mean, it's not, it's not so much about his age. For me, uh, I've been doing it a long time and I just kind of feel like doing, I mean, I haven't seen a summer practically in New England for, you know, 15 years. Uh, I want to uh, go rock climbing and... <laughs> just do some more warm weather things. Uh, but I probably, I mean, we'll both go back to the mountains, but pushing it alpine style at, uh, you know, 75 to 8,000 meter peaks uh, you know, in that range. Yeah, we're probably, we're the old breed. We're probably getting a little old for that. And uh, I mean, it really, there's a reason why guys and, you know, climbers our age aren't doing much of that. Um, uh, it's, it gets harder when you get older. 
Isn't it always hard? <laughs> it is. <laughs> but, you know, although it gets harder, you also, you know, you get a lot of experience. And, uh, you know, we're mountain climbers. And uh, mountain climbing, I mean, I've done a lot of other things in my life, but mountain climbing is as big a part of me as anything else. And, it's some, you know, these are the things that define us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Mark. Yeah. Uh, thanks to all of our, our guests today. And uh, just please give them a big round of applause. Thanks to Julie, Justin, and Jake at the Five Point Film Festival for making Live from Five Point possible. You all are the keepers of our community's creative flame. You've built something incredible in the town of Carbondale, and Becca and I are thrilled to be a part of it. A special thanks to Steve of Steve's Guitars for his kind, mellow patience, even when I'm a walking ball of stress. We couldn't have pulled this event off without Sean and Jeff of New Belgium Brewing, who kept the liquid creativity going throughout the event. This is what I envisioned a live diary show being, and you guys helped make it happen. Thank you as always. And of course, to Patagonia, who make the entire event possible. Thank you for your continued support and encouragement of creativity in the outdoor community. It goes a long way. This support comes from Kuat Racks, maker of a better bike rack. Visit them online at kuatracks.com. Music today by Dreamend, Ishk, and Liftoff. You can download the tracks at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. We've also got some new t-shirt designs for sale. I think you will dig them. So take a little time to poke around our website and look for the t-shirts on the right-hand column. All the proceeds go to our struggling artist in residence, Walker Cahal. Thanks for listening. I'm Fitz Cahal. Thanks to Josh, Chris, Ben, and Mark. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries live from Five Point.